Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. A psychoanalytic way of understanding sees humans as inherently divided between love and hatred of reality. Reality is hated when it thwarts our wishes, which are at times irrational and dominated by unconscious fantasies, and also when it exposes us to too much emotional pain. We need support and containment to bear reality. It's New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Richard Briette. I'm here with Sally Weintraub. Sally is a practicing psychoanalyst a fellow of the Institute of Psychoanalysis in London, author of numerous articles including Links Between Grievance, Complaint, and Different Forms of Entitlement, Violence, and Mental Space, and A Dehumanizing Form of Prejudice as Part of Narcissistic Pathological Organization. Sally's joining us from London to discuss a book she edited called Engaging with Climate Change, Psychoanalytic and Interdisciplinary Perspectives, which was released in 2013 by Rutledge. The book is based on a conference held at the Institute of Psychoanalysis in London in 2010. Sally Weintraub, welcome to New Books. Thank you. Hello, Richard. Hello. Um, I want to start by talking about a quote which I found really compelling, which is in the very, very beginning of the book, um, by Hannah Siegel. It's actually by Hannah Siegel's grandson who was talking about her funeral, um, he says, for Granny, the take-home message was that however dark the circumstances, it's essential to keep a little fire burning. In that conversation, she said how important it was for psychoanalysts to keep a little fire burning in the face of what she called, quote, the anti-mind approach. It's a really <laughs> striking quote. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt like it captured the overall um, ethos of the conference and the book. Can you, can you talk about that quote and, and what it means to you? Well, um, I, I agree. It's a very powerful quote. Mm. And uh, you know, I was greatly privileged to be at Hannah Siegel's funeral. I think she's um, she's had a tremendously powerful um, impact on me and a whole generation of psychoanalysts. Mm-hmm. And also she was a psychoanalyst who, who believed that psychoanalysts uh, have a neutral position, but they shouldn't be neutered. Hmm. She had things to say about the political mind as well in politics and mm-hmm. uh, had a great influence on me. Anyway, to go to the quote, um, well, I think, um, I think an important part of that quote is it's important to keep a little fire burning. Mm-hmm. And I understand uh, by that uh, she's talking about love and care and mindfulness. She's talking about... Um, uh, it, it has deep links for her with mm-hmm. a position in psychoanalysis uh, which has come to be known as the depressive position. Mm-hmm. I, I hate all this jargon. It doesn't mean that we're depressed right. in a clinical sense, but it does mean that we're in touch with um, love and concern. Right. I and, mean, I know that Winnicott... We, and, sorry? Uh, I know that and, Winnicott also has a, a version of it called the capacity for concern. Yes, right. yes. Uh, it's, he's talking about very similar things. Mm-hmm. 
And so um, to go back to your previous quote, you know, um, there's the issue of the conflict between a love of reality mm-hmm. and a hatred of reality. That That's the quote that you gave from the book. And I think that expresses uh, the love of reality um, is what I think Hannah Siegel would identify with uh, uh, a struggle to be mindful and to stay in touch with um you know, rea- the fact that reality also brings painful feelings and experience, you know, and to, uh, and to try and use one's love to constrain, uh, the part of one that wants to just, um, uh, express one's wishes and hates reality, mm-hmm. which I think she would identify, uh, as would many psychoanalysts, uh, with, with an anti-mind approach. Right. Now, what she meant by an anti-mind approach was, not just a statement of individual psychic conflict. I think she she used that phrase uh, more pointedly uh, because I think she felt that cultures could come under the influence of an anti-mind approach. Mm-hmm. So I would say that um, um, anti-mind for Hannah Siegel was also linked with uh, destructive forces that operate to... Um, uh, to, to, the, 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 which are, are sort of fueled by omnipotence. She wrote a lot about omnipotence. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, this is, this, yeah. Well, I think we'll get into that um, more directly once we talk about chapter nine of the book that you wrote, um, which really explores the relationship between capitalism and culture and how this kind of anti mind approach happens in cultural experience. Um, do, you, do, you mind, do you mind, Richard, if I just finish off one thought about that before we move on to absolutely. chapter nine? Because um, uh-huh. it might might make sense to people in terms of omnipotence and, and Hannah Siegel's ideas and so on. Sure. It's about climate change. Um, an omnipotent position uh, in, in Siegel's terms would be, for instance, uh, to see that there's a problem, like rising carbon emissions, and to use omnipotence to solve it, to have a kind of a magic solution. She called it it technically a manic repair. Mm. For example, um, you could set a whole lot of targets, which is what governments do, you know. Uh, In fact, our own uh, um, coalition government, uh, Conservative Party led here at the moment, Set the most ambitious targets ever. We had the green. We're going to have the greenest you know, government ever. Mm-hmm. So we're going to cut this, and we're going to do emissions, and we're going to do this, and we're going to roll it all out. But it's not genuine. Right. And now that that would be an omnipotent solution. What it does is it, and, and that's anti-mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, it creates a virtual world in which uh, you know you just solve things. It's a quick fix. And what you're actually solving is something very difficult and something that's going to cause you emotional pain as well as hard labor, which is which which the genuine depressive approach to damage would would lead you to. Mm-hmm. So you just do a quick fix, and uh, you know, and that's a manic repair. And uh, the whole area of climate change is absolutely full of this kind of magical thinking. That's what she meant by omnipotence. Anyway, I just thought I'd add that in. I think magical thinking is a great way to, to put it, um, you know, thinking about it 
Well, well let's, um, the, the idea of climate change, I think, for me, a pivotal way of looking at it in terms of a psychoanalytic context is that it's as though um, there's a moment when a person realizes the potential reality of what climate change, what the impact will be. It's yeah. almost like it's a kind of onset of a traumatic realization. Yes. And um, certainly for me, um, you know, I can think of a, a couple of points in my life where that really was a kind of experience. Um, and so, and that once you, uh, at least for me, once I, once you realize that it's almost a kind of clarity that, that comes upon you about, this is very, very serious. There yeah. is such a, a, a kind of array of fantasies that you can just latch onto very quickly to make that anxiety go away. Whether mm. it be conspiracy theories about science or climate, you know, the, the deniers, there's, there's sort of one discourse after another that you can latch onto and make yourself feel better. Mm. Um, so I, the exciting part of, of this book is, in, in part, I think, how to, what, what, is, what would it mean to overcome or to accept that anxiety in, in, a, in a loving way, I think? Would you say that that's, am I getting that right? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Perhaps you could say a bit more. The fact that we're, we're talking about a denial of a reality which is the impact of climate change and the fact that things are really going to change causes an anxiety. Mm. And I, th I think it's, it's as though this is a story kind of, of a person realizing something that makes them anxious and then mm. choosing to find a way of thinking of, or a fantastic way of thinking that relieves the anxiety. It makes it go away. And so the question is, how do we think about it? Exactly. How do we reintegrate? Well, um, one of the difficulties with climate change is that, you know, it's a subject that one needs just to go into. There's nothing simple to say about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, you know, one's not going to wrap it up in a few sentences. Um, but I think I, I'm increasingly getting interested in um, the way in which the, I think... You know, if we talk about anxiety-generating subjects in, in any sphere of life, mm -hmm. we need support to be able to bear them. You know, people can only bear things up to a certain point, and then they get over-anxious, and then they, they push it away or they change the subject or whatever it is. And I find, uh, I'm doing giving quite a lot of talks on climate change now, and I find that, you know, it's it's... You have to stay very close to people. I find myself using my own examples of like you did about how, you know, how one comes to these moments. Mm -hmm. But I think that we need a lot of support to bear the anxiety. And I think that one of the, to take it in and stay with it, to be able to live with it enough to change us and to get us involved. Because I think we need to get involved or we're going to, we're going to sort the problem. We've got very little time, you know. So the question is, um, I think the subject makes one feel anxious about the future. It makes one feel guilty. 
because one realizes if one thinks about it really hard that it's because of our way of living that this is you know we're all a little bit implicated in it mm-hmm. um and and you know there's an awful lot against us thinking about it i don't think it's just individual anxiety mm-hmm. i think we're in a culture where if you raise the subject people don't want to talk about it right so there's huge sort of social pressure to um, avoid talking about the seriousness. You know, I think we're in a culture, uh, what I'm expressing these days is I think we're in a culture of uncare that actually, um, you know, it suits the culture that we don't talk about climate change. We don't recognize how serious it is because in a way, to put it simply, it keeps us consuming, doesn't it? Which is a carbon intensive thing to be doing. So, you know, you, you refer to magical thinking uh, I call them these days our cover stories, you know, the things that we very quickly, just, you know, thoughts we very quickly have like, well, you know, it's not, uh, there's nothing I can do and it's China and it's this and that and, you know, we change the subject and we have, as you say, you know, um, but I think the culture drives this. Uh, so I don't think when we think about climate change, one of the complications is that I think we, we've internalized a whole culture that is in disavowal about climate change. It's minimizing it. And it's, it's not just that as individuals we, you know, um, uh, we're in disavowal. Um, right. I think the problem is how do you, how do you, um, how do you then break with the culture so that you can see things a bit more clearly for yourself, you know? And how do you survive those moments of acute anxiety that you talk about and that anyone experiences if they actually really look at the situation. You know, and I think another thing I want to add is that to me, the real tragedy of climate change, um, in a way, not even the rising emissions, which is, is bad enough, is that is the inaction. Because the more inaction there is, the harder it is for us to actually face what's going on. Because the more anxious it makes us, and the more overwhelming, uh, you know, it becomes a trauma, you know, so that... Um, this is the real problem, is, is that it renders us less able to, to cope, but we still have to, and we still have to take this in because, you know, we still have the time to actually turn this around and break with this culture of disavowal and start talking about it. And, and we need to take it in in order to do that. But the tragedy is, is that because of the inaction, it's making it harder and harder. It's a bit like a vicious circle. Exactly. Yep. Uh, well, for example, um, the idea that it's not too late, that there's th- still things that can be done. There's, there's even a point to that where we have to be realistic that, that damage is going to happen, that we have, we have to be more, um, open to the real complication of the issue that it's not all going to be better, but it, we can make it not as bad. Um, Absolutely. and so, Again, that is, it's hard to make that a compelling, um, vision, I think. Um, unless, as you say, we can change the culture of how we, exp- I, for one thing, how we experience nature. Um, and maybe you could say even the ideology of nature. Mm. Um, and, you know, you, you talk about that, um, for example, um, in this chapter, on chapter nine, should we um, yes, talk yes. a bit about that? Okay. Yep. It's, it's called On the Love of Nature and on Human Nature. And it talks about this idea of 
an internal landscape, which I thought was really compelling. Um, but you talk about one of your favorite writers, um, William Hudson. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think what really grabbed me about this chapter was you start to explore um, what it would be like, both I think in a personal way and a cultural way, to have an investment in sort of nurturing and developing a personal sense of what nature is um, outside of this ideology. Uh, Would you say that I have that right? Yes, I I would put it in the way I put it in that chapter is Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, if you look at any little child, I think we're primed to love nature. Mm-hmm. Um, little children love nature. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's very obvious and are fascinated by it. And, uh, you know, so it's not something in that sense that I think we need to cultivate. If anything, I think our social practices have alienated us from nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I would put it that way around, actually. And, of course, nature is um, a very complicated uh, uh, part of reality. It's it, 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 it's it's not all roses and beautiful views. It's it's um it's got a hard side too. It's 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 appreciating death, mm-hmm. and struggle, and you know uh, life forces and death forces and so on. You know so, uh, but I think uh, I think we we have we do live in ways that alienate us from nature, mm-hmm. um, Significantly, and in that chapter, I also um, look at the way our culture actively alienates us from nature. Could, before, I, I definitely want to get into that. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about this concept of internal psychic landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a really useful way of sort of looking at this this problem of how we experience or think about nature. Um, but I wasn't really familiar with the, the notion of an internal psychic landscape. Can you can you sort of talk about it a little bit? Explain what that means. Well, I think it starts with um, a sense that we um, we 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 have an inner world. Mm-hmm. You know, we take in the the outside world, which which is a series of landscapes that we see, and it's peopled. And people are people and animals and everything and, and you know, flora and fauna and everything that's in it. And we form an inner representation of our relationships with all these um, beings. Yeah? And mm-hmm. they interact with each other. And rather than see this in some disembodied way as like um, psychic space, just a space or an empty stage or, or, or something. Mm-hmm. It occurred to me, um, you know, sitting working as a psychoanalyst and listening to patients' material, uh, dreams, think, reflecting on my own experience and so on, um, actually, we dream in landscapes. You know, a patient will say, well, I was walking down the road and then there was a hill and a tree and, you know, then, you know, this animal came and whatever, you know, we actually... This is how we experience our inner world. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we experience it visually uh, to a very large degree, not only, but, you know, so that's where it started. And then um, uh, the, the kind of landscapes that I was thinking about were 
once we have our inner world, we don't just think in terms of, you know, taking in something from outside that then looks exactly the same when it's on the inside. It's influenced when it's internal. Mm -hmm. it, it's dominated by how we arrange things in the landscape and our fantasies and, and so on. You know, so and that's not exactly, you know, that's that, that that doesn't correspond exactly with outside reality, although it's informed by outside reality. So, for instance. Um, if you're, uh, if you're going, in terms of nature, um, you say something like environmental damage. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we can, we know that certain of our um, carbon-intensive ways of living are causing damage. But we can um, we can arrange uh, our the, the the people that we relate to who are being damaged into groups that are far away from us right. in our imagination. We we locate them on the other side of the world, uh, and then we don't feel so uh, tormented by thinking about what they're suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or and this is the really difficult thing with climate change. We we sort of put them into a place that we call, you know, the future. And, and those, those people, groups, people can be our own grandchildren. But we've psychically rearranged things so that they are spatially further away from us in our imagination. That's another thing that we do. So we create groups and we assign them and we are on the principle that, you know, um, uh, we've got some people closer to us and other people away from us, and that actually what governs all this is trying to preserve our own sense of being trouble-free, you know, not tormented by anxiety or guilt or shame or difficult emotions. So we rearrange our landscapes. That's the sort of thing that I've got in mind. Yeah. Well, it really um, connects the... Um the, I, the concepts of um, how those operate as internally like a defense um, in yeah. a psychoanalytic yeah. sense. But it's also very literal um, in terms of politically how and culturally how climate change is represented. It's something that affects, say, people on tropical islands, but not us. Yes. Um, yes. The, um, you know, crop shortages will affect someone else and not us. Yes. Um, so there's a real direct link, um, which was really striking to me in terms of how the psychoanalytic concept is really reflected in how a culture is denying um, this Absolutely. reality. Absolutely. And I want to bring in something else, uh, another kind of rearranging that we do, mm -hmm. which is that I think that, and I think it's culturally driven, and that was my point in, 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 in that article. Um, I think that we arrange things so that we create, you know, what the, what the psychoanalyst John Steiner called a psychic retreat, mm -hmm. which is like a little gated community, a little area in the mind where we can be free of all troubling, troubling, inconvenient feelings, all emotional discomfort. And in there, we can feel very superior. And, uh, you know, we're the in, we're the in group. Right. But what we can also do is that we can we can do this with parts of ourselves, and this is the point I want to underline. Mm -hmm. So the part of us that actually 
um, doesn't feel superior, feels uh, very concerned, you know, isn't just a superior consumer thinking, well, I'll have it all for me and I don't have to care about anyone else and I don't even have to feel guilty about it. That I can push that all out there, you know, and, and, and send it to some faraway landscape. We actually, we also consign uh, parts of ourselves that do care to being far away. Right. That, that, that's, you know, and, and it's only when we can get those parts back that, um, that we, we can reconnect with those parts. So I think this sort of spatial arranging we do is very, very extensive and it actually applies to parts of ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. We outsource the, our, our caring sides and then look down on them, you know, um, tree huggers and, uh, you know, we denigrate uh, the parts of ourselves that actually do care about what's going on in the world. And getting back to, you, you describe it as a non-split natural landscape. Um, it, 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 I, I mean, I'm certainly wondering, and I'm sure our listeners are, how does one regain um, access to that part of the self that cares? I, I know it's a tough question. I don't know whether... Um, in your experience, you're seeing or thinking about how that works? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example because I, it is a tough question because I don't think it's something that you can just plan to do. Right. It's you like, know, I like analytic the, the treatment. about these um, arrangings is that they're not conscious mm-hmm. uh, or they, they're not very conscious anyway. Uh, one, one, you know. But I, I'll give you a personal example um, of... Because we're all in the culture and we, we all live in these split landscapes. So I was trying to, we have a very good public transport system in London mm-hmm. and uh, trying to get my carbon emissions down. I uh, taken to going on the bus. And one day it was a, it was really um, horrible weather, it was sort of spitting rain and very cold. And I was standing there and I'd deliberately not taken the car. And I heard myself and I thought, um, you know, oh, I just can't stand waiting for the bus. <laughs> I can't stand it. And uh, all of a sudden, um, something happened. This is what I mean. It wasn't planned. It was quite spontaneous. I have grandchildren. And I suddenly my grandchildren, grown up and in the future, were very close to me there, as it were, at the bus stop. They were in their reality. And I was in my reality, and I heard what I'd just said. I can't stand waiting for the bus. And their reality was a devastated reality, and I was standing in a bit of bad weather. And suddenly I heard a certain kind of quality in my voice. I thought I sounded like a bit like a spoiled rat, mm. you know, and I didn't like myself. Now, they, in my imagination, all this is in my imagination, they weren't accusing me of anything, actually. Uh, but I, it sounded like, you know, that was the only justification I could come up with. I didn't like waiting for the bus. And so I was very shocked by this, actually. Um, and uh, I thought what had happened at that moment is that um, something, some splitting had become undone. Because although I actually write about climate change and talk about it and think about it a great deal, 
and I've, I've even talked and thought about the effect on my grandchildren. I've never had an emotional experience like that. Mm-hmm. And um, it did something quite profound to me. You know, it undid some sort of mental separating where I put them in some other landscape. But here we were having a direct conversation. So I, I don't know if that's an answer to no. It's 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 very uh, it's very poignant, and yeah. I think it's a great um, illustration of the what a non-split, if we could put it that way, experience would be. That there are these element, elements of love, elements of sadness, mm-hmm. um, a kind of reality, but then there's also a gesture of care. Mm. And maybe even kindness, all sort of richly blended into one um, experience or one image. Mm. Now, the um, thing is that you know, one can't plan these things. Um, <sighs> it happened, but it probably happened, probably happened because of a lot of um, thinking about it. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think that may also touch a bit on um, concepts that were. That made a lot of appearances in the various essays in the in the in the book, the idea of ecological debt and ecological gratitude. Yes, I mean at this point, I just want to say something about the book because it's really not my book. I mean, right. I, I'm I've got two chapters in it, but there are actually twenty three authors in the book. Right. And you're referring to um, a chapter by someone called Ro Randall mm-hmm. uh, on ecological debt and gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thanks for thanks for pointing that out. Yes, it's a yeah. it's a book edited by you, um, and like I said in the beginning, um, it's based on a 2010 conference, um, which is available on YouTube as well. Okay. Um, but getting back to what you 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 were talking, you were asking me about um, ecological debt and and gratitude, um, and, and those seem to be feelings or feeling states um, that may be an important counter to the um, the sort of um, entitlement and omnipotence and, Mm. you know, splitting, you know, it's, it's, there's a grandiosity um, to this capitalist Western idea of, um, you know, self and versus nature and, a counter to that seems to be these these ideas of ecological debt and gratitude. Um, would you see it operating that way? Um, yes, I'll, I'll go on to that. I just want to make one point. I think um, I, I want to say this. I don't think that the issue um, is simply about capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's about a state of mind uh, and it's about an uncaring state of mind that we get into. Um, and it is a mindset that I think is, is very prevalent and driven by the culture under capitalism for various reasons. But I also think, uh, it can apply to other cultures as well. You know, th- 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 I just wanted to say that, um, because okay. I, think, I think it's important. Um, mm-hmm. but to, okay, to, to, to get to, um, ecological debt, um, Roe Randall's paper, um, she uses um, 
um, Dickens's Great Expectations uh, as a vehicle for talking about ecological debt, where, um, you know, Pip um, thought that all his good fortune, for those of us who, you know, if you remember the story, mm-hmm. um, were, were because of, I can't remember her name, um, oh dear, anyway, um, she, the, the benefactor that Pip thought he had wasn't the real one, which was uh, the, um, the Australian convict who he'd helped when he was, when he was a boy. Mm-hmm. And um, she uses this imagery to, that Havisham, and this Havisham, right. Yes. She uses this imagery to um, to point out how you know we can think that uh, our good fortune is our entitlement or because of this or that other qualities that we have, and we actually forget the enormity of uh, our, our debt to the natural world. I mean that we couldn't function without the natural world, and. Um, uh, you know, wh- one of the ways that, that I um, um, sense this issue is, you know, you go into a supermarket and it says, you know, do this and that and the other thing to save, we're trying to save the planet, you know, as if it's in our gift right. to save nature. You know, um, uh, it, it's a complete um, denial of, of just what we owe nature. And so, um, and, and those kinds of feelings... Uh, mitigate uh, uh, and, 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 and you come up against our omnipotence in the same way that they do in individual relationships, you know, in our personal relationships when when we, we get more in touch with our gratitude it tends to go with a bit more of a humble position um, mm-hmm. and counteracts something a bit more narcissistic in us mm-hmm. you know uh, but um, it's a very, very good chapter uh to read on just the whole way of thinking about uh, ecological debt, which, as Randall points out, um, never appears on the balance sheets, what we owe, uh, you know, in, in, in our economies. Right. Yeah. Um, the cost, cost of cleaning up yeah. pollution isn't yeah. included in the cost of gas. No. That kind of thing. No. Right. It's a polluter's charter. That, that's how everything's being framed in this culture. Um, well, I, I don't want to, um, stop this interview without talking about Shark Week. Um, I don't know if you know what that is. Um, you you talk about, um, nature programs, um, in something that I found very interesting and, um, how, the form of nature programs, the way that they're um, edited and put together in the, the sound uh, production um, is illustrative of um, this grandiose position vis-a-vis nature, I, I think. Mm. Um, and I definitely want to get into that. Um, but it had me thinking about nature programs. Um, and I certainly grew up with David Attenborough uh, programs which, you know, had a, 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 a sort of calm, reverent quality, I think. Yes. Um, and, you know, spiritual even. And, you know, I was thinking about what we have now in America, at least. And sadly, you know, what comes to mind is Shark Week, which is um, a week of shows on um, a cable channel um, that are really hyped um, you know, 
dramatic shows about sharks and shark attacks and how ferocious they are and that kind of thing. Other than that, I can't think of other popular representations of nature, at least here. Um, this is a very sad state of affairs. It is sad. Goodness me, yeah. Um, but you, you know, you talk about pumped up loud music. Um, um, there's a reference to a, 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 a review of a BBC One show called Lost Land of the Tiger, which is more about the, 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 the cast members than about nature. Yeah. Um, and this, the idea that there are loud flashbang noises and quick editing. And there's even a whoosh sound um, with the, the the editing and with the cuts, um, and and that you know it's easy to find um, amusing in a way, but I, I found there's a lot of truth to it. <clears throat> Can you tell me sort of how you came upon this and and, and how you put this together? I think. Uh I'm a nature lover, and I, I, um, I, you know, I follow nature programs, and I started to notice uh, this change, um, and, and not only in nature programs, it's it's right across the board in cinema because I'm also a cinema lover, a film lover. Isn't it? Me too. Um, and you find the same phenomenon um, going on there, and I start. It started to seem to me like attempts to break up one's thinking and to break up a sense of, uh, you know, that one had some sort of um, internal space to call one's own in which to think, you know, so that you get much more often TV programs, you know, sudden intrusive visual material of a violent nature, that kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, I started to think about, well, what's going on here? And it seemed to me this was anti-mind. It was anti-thinking. And uh, I know I'm putting a lot of different things together here. Um, I think they all fit. They, they do fit. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they do generally fit in, you know, the, the message is stop thinking. Stop thinking in a way that um, is reflective and comes from um, some sort of caring position. To go back to Hannah Siegel, yeah. where there's a little fire burning of concern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, and, and I, I think it led me to see the culture as sort of predatory on our minds, actually, the current culture, and definitely anti-mind. And so, you know, I find all these, um, trends quite disturbing, really. Yeah. And I, I think that if we pretend they don't have an effect on us, you know, they do, actually. We're not immune to these. Effects. You know, I just found myself, um, I'll, I'll freely associate here, yeah. um, thinking about a film, I think from the late 30s, called Captain's Courageous, <laughs> um, with Spencer Tracy playing a cod fisherman, a Portuguese cod fisherman off the coast of um, Newfoundland. Um, I think I just associated to it because... It's a story about a child overcoming grandiosity in the face of adversity with a feeling... I don't know. Have you seen the movie? I haven't, no. 
Captain's Courageous. It I'm is... going to look up this and uh, Shark Week. <laughs> <laughs> well, look up Captain's Courageous yeah, and Shark yeah. Week, you know. Um, I'll email you something about it. Um, anyway, um, we have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you, it's been you know several years now since that conference and a couple since the book came out. What what has it been like? You're you're um, you're doing some public speaking about climate change. What what has your experience been of the kind of public reception of these concepts since you've been doing this? Um, I've been very heartened by um, the, the the general readers' response to engaging with climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's had a very good reception, and I think. I think, you know, there's an awful lot of um, material about climate change which looks at our attitudes and our behaviours, but this this actually looks at how we feel and what it means to us. And it's as if there is a hunger for, um, you know, for, for understanding at that sort of level and for people wanting to be related to. So, yes, it's had a very good reception, and um, particularly with um, non it, it, you know, beyond the mental health sphere, which has personally pleased me a lot. And I am talking and writing still and, um, you know, have new projects and so on. It's still in the climate change area because I think the situation is so serious. But, um, can yeah. you, um, can I ask what, can you give us a sense of what you're working on now? Is that, or are you superstitious or can you tell us a little bit? Um, the current thing I'm 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 really writing about the culture and our need to break with the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're actually going to um, make any progress to get our emissions down, because getting our emissions down and confronting our disavowal and our you know our, this form of denial of of how serious the situation is, I think are the most important things we face right, right here and now. So yes, I'm still. Um, I'm writing about the culture. Well, um, you know, I have to say, the reading the book um, and all of the essays by all very various authors has really given me a sense of hope that I haven't seen or felt before about climate change. Um, and I think precisely because how specifically it gets to the feelings around thinking about you know, the reality of this topic. Um, so I would really encourage people to um, go out and get the book. And um, even just as a psychoanalytic text, it's, um, it's really fascinating. So um, again, the book is Engaging with Climate Change, Psychoanalytic and Interdisciplinary Perspectives, um, 2013 from Rutledge. Sally Weintraub, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, new books in psychoanalysis well thank you very much for having me (laughs) all right um until next time this is new books in psychoanalysis